Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliard. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. We've got a great show. Vince Scafaria is here. Vince is the CEO of DotAline, which is a software company in New York. He is a, a tech entrepreneur. Before that, he worked for a long time in finance. He was an investment banker and then uh, trained investment bankers in investment banking. So he has uh, significant knowledge in both tech and finance, and you know, which is interesting and especially of the moment right now. Um, and he's written a bunch of recently really interesting threads and essays on things like pro-social capitalism. This essay, uh, you can find it actually at prosocialcapitalism.com. So I wanted to have him on and talk about some myths that Republicans are advancing, one of them being the scarcity myth, which is the idea that, oh, my God, we're going to run out of money for Social Security and Medicare, which is you're not going to believe this. Not true. So we get into all that um, and lots of other stuff. We recorded this in late October. So it was before the election and it was before Elon Musk took over Twitter. Two kind of important things uh, that happened of significance in the last month. We're well into the interview and we realized that this was going to run after election day. And we kind of had a laughing fit. I'm going to apologize. There are some problems with the audio. So for whatever reason, certain words at the end of sentences got cut out. So I would say like society and it'll say society. I don't know why it did that. I don't know if Elon Musk also took over Zoom. I'm not sure. So I apologize. But uh, I think you can get the you can get the gist. Unfortunately, it was mostly me that this happened to and not Vince. So, uh, you know, we like to have a good a good forum for our guests on this Prevail podcast. I'm recording this on November 10th, Thursday morning, 
5.43 a.m. Eastern Time. We don't yet know what is going to happen uh, with the election. You know, it's still a little bit up in the air. Obviously, things turned out a lot better for Democrats than most of these moron pundits seem to think. Although every single person that I know on Twitter, you know, uh, told me that this was what was going to happen. So, you know, oh, my God, the patriarchal moron pundits misread that women would be mad about abortion. Derp. Um, and the, however they're doing the polling, it isn't working. As Victor Xi pointed out many times, Gen Z was going to come out in force. They did. Um, they came out in force and voted for Democrats because Republicans, you know, want to uh, accelerate climate change and deny them basic rights. And uh, they're smart enough to realize that that is bad and they don't want that. You don't want to live in a Christo fascist police state because um, really, who does other than like, I don't know, Michelle Bachman. Um, so it looks OK. It looks like. Uh, George is going to be a runoff. I'm pretty confident that Warnock will win the runoff. I think there was a spoiler candidate there that was pulling votes away from him. Um, you know, independents voted for this other dude because they didn't want to vote for either one. They're not going to vote for Herschel Walker. I think we're going to be safe in Georgia. Obviously, we picked up the seat in Pennsylvania when Fetterman defeated uh, Erdogan's buddy, Dr. Oz, in the, sta the great state of Pennsylvania that Oz does not live in. And uh, it's looking like Arizona is going to go our way. And even Nevada, which has been red on the TV. Actually, I have not turned on the TV once, but I, I'm assuming they show it in red because that's who's ahead right now. It's looking like as of this writing, that's going to turn and we're going to be OK in Nevada, which means we're going to be OK, at least in the Senate. The House is still up in the air. I think, uh, you know, even Lauren Boebert, that vote is so close. It's like basically, you know. A, a block of t <laughs> some street is, is what's between these two candidates. I expect that if she loses, she's going to demand the recount and bitch and moan um, like all of the MAGA do. But we'll see. You know, maybe she's had enough. Uh, even if she wins, man, that that is a heavy red district. And, you know, people do not like her. This is a mandate of nothing. This is a you, you, you're an embarrassment lady. But if she loses, that's a pickup. You know, it's a significant pickup because the House is really teetering on the edge here. So, you know, we'll see what happens. There's some thinking that in California, things will settle down and we'll wind up okay. Either way, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, I mean, this is a guy who is about as craven as, as it comes. You know, this is the guy who was like, I think there's only two people, Putin pays, Trump and Rohrabacher, you know, way back in 2015. He knew this. He knows what's going on. He doesn't care. After the insurrection, which he clearly knew was a Trump uh, joint, as they say, very soon after that, um, flew to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring. Remember the hideous picture of the two of them looking at the camera beaming. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who was owned. I don't know that he's going to be able to have the, the wit or the uh, ability to navigate what, what's going to be ahead of him. So, you know, we'll see. Um, also, the election is now over. So it's time, Merrick Garland, wherever you are. Um, his birthday is on Sunday, I happen to know, because my birthday is also on Sunday. Uh, maybe he's planning his birthday party. And, you know, when he's planning a birthday party, everything has to be just so, has to be just right. Have to make sure that the cake is ordered. Have to make sure that the, the RSVPs go out. Have to make sure everything is just so before anybody can have a birthday party. But seriously, he's had a lot of time to work on this stuff. People have given him the benefit of the doubt. It's put up or shut up time right now for Merrick Garland. He's either got to indict people or step aside. I think it's pretty clear. Um, 
you know, maybe he wants to wait this week to let everything from the election die down. Maybe he wants to celebrate his birthday and then come out uh, guns blazing. But, you know, this constant delay is just I, I can't stand it. It, it. it is not serving democracy. It just isn't. Um, and you look at things like, you know, they get delays. The, the, the Trump people get delays constantly. It's like Steve Bannon should be in prison right now. And he's like, we're going to delay it. And the judge is like, OK, why? He's a fucking he broke the law. Go to jail, man. You were convicted. Go to jail. Now nah, we're just going to delay. You know, the Lindsey Graham thing, delay, Donald Trump thing, delay, 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 delay. But if like Elon Musk is going to buy Twitter, we can't delay that for 11 fucking days until the, the election is over. Like, it, I, I just it confounds the mind. It confounds the mind. So Merrick Garland is on notice. He's on the clock, as they say in the NBA. And uh, I hope that we hear from him. I really do. I, I don't know what to expect anymore. I, that I do not know. But I hope that we hear from him. Um, you know, I know people at the DOJ are working hard. I know this. I know that the people at the DOJ care about democracy and about, you know, prosecuting the bad guys. We need to see evidence of it now. It can't be this little, oh, we, you know, this guy that we arrested because he was driving this a truck from New Jersey to New York. Get the real bad guys. Democracy is, is, is at stake here. Go get them. We're on your side. And let me tell you, if Merrick Garland brings down the hammer... This country will applaud him. They will applaud him. Maybe he's afraid. Don't be afraid, man. We want you to succeed in this. And most of the country is behind you. So, you know, get her done. Uh, did I apologize for the audio already? I think I did. Um, so sorry about that. Uh, again, great conversation. Um, we cover a lot of ground, lots of interesting things, things I didn't know. Stick around. We'll be right back with Vince Scafaria. Are you running for political office but have to operate on a tight budget? Signs can help. Hi, I'm Lee Zeldin, president of Signs. That's Signs with a Z for Zeldin. This is how it works. You give me whatever money you have. I call my buddy Ron Lauder, who's like a billionaire, and he prints up hundreds of thousands of signs and hires three guys in a van to place them all across the state. And people drive by and see all the signs, and they're so impressed. Lee Zeldin must be a winner, they say, because how else could he have so many signs? Women must really like Lee Zeldin. You can tell because of the women for Zeldin sign. And then they go vote for you and you win. Simple. Cheap. You don't have to do things like advertise on stupid podcasts like this. And at Signs, we guarantee that you won't lose, or else we let you keep all the signs after Election Day. Talk about a win-win. So sign up with signs. Tell them Lee Zeldin sent you. And remember, I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. And now, back to the show. Vince Cafaria, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. Um, behind you, I know this is an audio podcast. You have what appears to be a swan, a white swan on a black background. But I thought looking at it, oh, it's a black swan in the same way that like on Twitter, they call it a blue check, even though technically the check white in a blue right. field. So yeah. is that a black swan? Is there some significance? I, to I, the? I think it's an egret and it's just, you know, beautiful kind of, you know, love okay. nature and uh, yeah, nothing, nothing, specific. nothing nefarious. Okay. No, and I, it is I, definitely white. I wasn't <laughs> <like you> said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I 
I think I think no, so. No black swan events, certainly um, during the course of this podcast. Let's hope. Um, I actually was recording a podcast on my friend Kimberly Johnson show during the insurrection while it was mm. happening. So mm. it's not like black swan events haven't happened while Got I've been it. doing podcasts before. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be the first time. So okay, now you're coming. You you come at Twitter and all of this stuff from a finance background, and you told me that you know what you do is you're an investment banker or a former investment banker who teaches people how to investment bank. Is that correct? Do I have it right? It, I'm you, simplifying it in a dumb you, way, I'm you, sure. Uh, well, so that was true going on, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. Um, my first business was teaching what I learned when I was an investment banker, kind of then taught how to how to build financial models to analyze transactions and how to understand um, valuation and just general economic stuff. Um, and so that was part of my first business. I've, I've actually been a techie and a coder for the past 20 or so years, um, which included part of that time. And so I think what I'm kind of bringing is sort of thinking about economics and tech, which are two areas that really impact our lives. It's also two areas where there are a lot of myths. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of just money? kind of money. Yeah. <laughs> and I've really taken a little bit of a different path from most. Um, you know, I left investment banking when I was 25. So it's not like I, you know, was some high roller. Um, and then I taught for a number of years. And on the tech side, I have since day one been railing against surveillance capitalism. So what we call more like privacy first tech. So, you know, I think really just kind of looking at economics and tech, the areas where I come from, and you'd say like fintech, for example, and sort of saying, well, wait a minute, the way that finance is working for the broader economy, the way that tech has been monetizing access to our minds, um, you know, what are some systems level understandings that can be drawn from like, what the hell is going on? And, uh, you know, I think we're really oftentimes kind of bounced around in the day to day, you know, there's the, just the daily pummeling of news. Um, and I, I feel that one of the things that's most important is to synthesize some of that and really establish the, the narratives, the understanding, um, you know, of, of what is happening in our world and why, um, I don't pretend to know all the different areas, but I've got, you know, some of it and, you know, follow people like you and a number of other people who have taught me a lot. And uh, yeah, so hopefully I can share a bit too. Yeah, no, I, I, I know that you're doing other things. I, I wanted to start there to pick your brain because honestly, when people say, oh, I'm an investment banker, I don't even really know what that means. So before oh, we sure. get into the into the nuts and bolts, of it, sure. just explain it to like the English majors that are sure, listening sure. to this. Exactly. Like, what is investment that... banking? Why do we care about it? Why does it sure, matter? Sure. Why um, do these people make so much more money than we do? Sure. And that's, you know, my, I'm not, sitting here to rail against uh, any particular industry. Um, uh, in fact, as I'd say, some of my best friends are investment bankers. Um, <laughs> but really it's, so in the old days, you'd go to a bank and a bank would just do pretty much one simple thing. It would, uh, you'd put your deposits there and then they'd lend out money. And if they lent it out at a slightly higher rate and, you know, so it was basically just trying to help the economy realize some potential now based on, you know, oh, hey, if, if we uh, borrow money and, build something great, then maybe that can be you know, built, I don't know, set up a new fishing vessel, then we'll have more fish to eat. And we're kind of creating the future that we want to live in by virtue of um, being able to make that happen. We're kind of borrowing against the future potential that we believe will happen, right? So that's kind of finance. It's moving money between present day and future day. And it's a valuable activity. Um, investment banking, similarly, uh, there are very good reasons why one company might want to acquire another business, right? Like you have a great product. I have a great sales channel. We should 
get together. Right? So an investment banker might advise on that merger, might say, oh, this is a fair price to pay, um, et cetera. There's also then capital raising. So the typical kind of thing is, hey, we just, just go to a bank as a CEO and I say, I need a bank credit facility. I borrow and like simple stuff. But then if you get to a higher level, you need to um, like you're borrowing a lot, then you need to do more fancy stuff, or maybe you need to do an IPO. So it's the different kinds of capital raising and mergers and acquisitions are typical. And then of course, private equity has become a very big thing. That's where I started my career was in private equity in the nineties. So these things are in and of themselves, um, you know, it's expected that there ends up being a speculative component to anything financial, right? So just like derivatives, they can be used to hedge what will the price of grain be when I need to go to market so that I can feel more comfortable planting, right? That's a hedging use, or they can be speculative, like, you know, long-term capital management had all kinds of derivatives and nearly took down the economy because, you know, they made the wrong bets. So I think it's a matter of degree. And that was one of the things that really I started my, uh, I don't know, economic life, uh, uh, you know, my mindset, uh, really based on what they taught at Wharton and on Wall Street, which I would describe as, frankly, mainstream economic. Um, I, I recognize it now as neoliberalism, I think we talk about, and which is just a slightly different shade from libertarianism. And this now I'm at this point, I'll pause because I'm kind of like transitioning away from talking about investment banking, and maybe okay. there's some questions there. But um, I think, I think the the investment banking function and and these kinds of functions are one thing. What I think has really gone on is that the regulatory environment, the the ability to hold power accountable, um, these things have come a bit unglued. And so, you know, you asked me about from an investment banker standpoint, I don't actually think that's where most of the challenges we face today come from. Uh, you know, like I'm advising you on a merger and what's the right price to pay. You know, no, that's that in itself, um, you know, can make a lot of sense. I think the kinds of things that have been tricky are that any business is allowed to merge with any other business these days. There's no such thing as antitrust. We've got a couple different cell phone companies. We've got a couple different big tech companies, right? So it's not the job function. It's the it's that um, the finance and tech sectors are not held in check at all, and power begets power. And we haven't even gotten to talking about fossil fuels and so on, right? And so I think that's more, I've been really focused on trying to think about why and how certain categories of power just keep compounding into more power. And, you know, what does that mean for democracy? And so, you know, I, I hope you don't mind that I've kind of used the, because ultimately I want to talk, you know, I want to answer your question, but also when I talk about the things that are problems in the economy, I'm not actually laying at the feet of investment banking. I'm laying it at the feet of, you know, these systems level problems that um, need to be explored. And I'll pause there before we explore it. Um, no, thank you for that. The whole point of the questions is to get you to talk. I, I'm, I'm tired of <laughs> listening to myself talk. So, um, you know, you have you have knowledge that I want to learn from. So yeah. um, that, that's the whole point of all of it is to teach me something. And I think what you're getting at with the antitrust is this whole like we're in a brave new world here. Um, pun. I, is it a pun? Literary illusion intended uh, where, right. you know, tech companies, there there isn't baked in regulation for tech companies the way they are other companies because, you know, is, is Facebook a media company? Is it a tech company? Like how it's defined? It's really something different. Right. It's sort of a hybrid of each thing. Yeah. And we don't have a mechanism for dealing with that. Similarly to 120 years ago, we didn't have a mechanism dealing with U.S. Steel and Standard Oil and these other companies. Yeah. And, you know, it yeah. took 
it took the government a little while to figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, McKinley had to die and Roosevelt had to take over for, <laughs> for changes to happen as this right. book I read. But um, so I want to talk about all of the stuff that you just mentioned. Uh, you were going to say something because I have another question, but say no, what you're going to say. It's great. I, I, I'll just tell you the topic I was, you know, going to delve into and circle back to it after your question. But, you know, it's sort of, I had this belief that each individual capitalist goes out to the marketplace, so to speak, and that that's kind of a given. It's fixed. It's set by society. And there are certain regulations and policies and things that democracy has decided. And, you know, under that paradigm, if you're out there trying to raise your prices, you know, let's see if you can. And if your product is superior, you can. And, you know, you'll do better and good thing for those incentives. And um, I just kind of have learned and come to understand what's really transpired over the last 50 years that I believe helps explain a lot of how that got out of whack. And so that's that's the topic. Why don't we go now before we forget? Because this sounds interesting. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, so um, at, at Wharton, and I was a you know, finance major and, um, you know, our economics textbook was heavily, heavily influenced by Milton Friedman. And we've now all heard of Milton Friedman, um, but really that was just kind of economics. Uh, the the idea being, or, or his big idea, which he published in, I think it was 71 or 70, was, and he did many, a bunch of different things, he was an economic consultant, Pinochet, he did all kinds of different things, but what he's best known for is saying that the social responsibility of business is profit. And what he meant by the social responsibility of businesses to do that is, he would argue, um, hey, I didn't invest in your company so that you could figure out who your favorite charities are. Okay. I invested in your company so that you could specialize in whatever it is that you do, be a great business, return capital to people like me as a shareholder. And I will go out, you know, and and do things like maybe invest in charities. And so there's something to that. And that really um, resonated uh, strongly and, you know, wasn't long after you'd hear, you know, greed is good and things like that, but that, that gets a, a little further. Now, if, if we're each going out in the world and meeting the regulatory and policy environment that the democracy has set up, then yeah, let's let's just try and maximize profit. So I didn't have, I don't, I don't think any, most people in my generation really had the broader backdrop of the next two characters that I'll bring to the story. So it was kind of, okay, I'm a capitalist and a business owner or, or what have you, and I'm going to go interface with the market. Meanwhile, at around the exact same time, Lewis Powell, who mm -hmm. became a Supreme Court justice, wrote the Powell Memo to the Chamber of Commerce. Very influential. I only learned about it recently. So, you know, didn't it wasn't something that we talked about back in my schooling or, you know, what have you. The Powell Memo said, um, business leaders, we should control government. We should control policy. We should um, stop taking the public policy environment as a given and instead in bend it to our will. And so you saw the number of lobbyists skyrocket, the um, you know, political donations, et cetera, skyrocket. And so the you had this concept of maximize shareholder value and just worry about profits, but all of a sudden you didn't have a fixed playing field of, you know, uh, that we're playing in. Power and wealth could suddenly beget more power and wealth through the influence. Through the influence, one of the first things that that uh, uh, one of the first levers that got pulled is where we introduced the third person, Robert Bork, who's best known for his disastrous Supreme Court nomination, but who um, was highly influential in basically saying that the only thing that matters for whether a merger should be approved is whether 
consumer prices will or won't go up. And so effectively, all sorts of mergers and mega mergers are fine. So you had a generation, uh, my generation, I'm 48, um, and, you know, plus or minus, uh, basically went out in the market with, you know, whether with their degrees and so forth, and basically took one of two main jobs, Wall Street types and consulting types. And so your Wall Street types would, um, you know, do mergers and acquisitions. The more mergers, the better. Uh, obviously, private equity became a thing. And so let's invest money from pension funds and so forth. Fine. And then consultant types who would, you know, one of the main things was how can we obviously be more efficient? And so efficiency, 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 the mantra, right? Um, so you could certainly be more efficient by sending jobs offshore. You could be more efficient by, you know, lots of different things, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these. In fact, up until, you know, around 2000, this is where, by the way, I think it, you know, a lot of the brain power went coming out of school was into, you know, uh, Wall Street and consulting. And fine, except that you started to also have this, this mindset amongst the very wealthy that these smart folks can help protect my wealth, can help compound my wealth. We can now figure out how to, you know, have offshore havens and so on and so forth. And so we really, the, um, you know, Main Street and Wall Street started diverging, of course. And um, and I think just, uh, you know, power can beget power. Wealth can beget wealth. And the libertarian philosophy is good. You're damn right. And unfortunately, there's no check to that. You have an exponential system without a check. And historically, the check for that has been periodic revolution. It's not great, yeah. right? So, um, so I've been reflecting on this. I, I didn't reflect on really any of this until probably about 12 years ago. So I just, you know, I voted for Bush, actually, I kind of, you know, went about, um, you know, thinking, thinking just about my immediate tasks and jobs. I was reading a book by Peter Schiff, Ron Paul's economic advisor called The Coming Bankruptcy. And it's just, it was this gripping tale set, you know, in like, I don't know, um, it was before I thought it was, I, I forget the exact time, but it was this gripping tale that, um, you know, America just couldn't do it. And, and we had to make lots of cuts. And, um, you know, this is just the way that it has to be because uh, the efficiency prerogative is so important and we need to give unbridled um, incentives to the capitalist. And, you know, who's to say what the price of a particular drug ought to be, if not what the market will bear and these kinds of things. And I was nodding along until I got to the point where I said, wait a second. So if there's some kid whose dad is maybe a little bit I don't know, he, he, he hurt his back or who knows what, right? This kid is going to not get medicine, is not going to get um, fed. And, you know, a little while later, I heard a quote from Ross Perot, um, never forget there's a child out there who's starving and he's way smarter than you, right? <laughs> and so, you know, these different themes just started sitting with me and saying, you know, I'm not sure that everything I learned is actually true. It's very clear how it's good for the people who, have this narrative, but I want a thriving economy. I want a dynamic, thriving, growing economy, but but one where everybody can have a good job and where we don't have to say there's no social security for Nana. And I learned that that is actually very attainable. It's the myths that hold us back and they're self-serving myths. For We're going to get into the myths because I want to talk about the myths because um, they're interesting. Um, quickly, you know, you're talking about mergers and I want to just hammer home the point that the reason that some of these mergers are problematic is because, especially in, for example, media, where you used to have, you know, a bunch of independently newspapers yeah, and then, media, you know, man. a couple of corporations gobble them up and then they make cuts. And the next thing you know, 
there's three or four companies or whatever it is that are in charge of basically everything that you read or watch and this yeah. and that. It, it's not quite as Orwellian as it sounds, but it's not fantastic either. Um, and there's, you know, you want to make sure that there's competition. I mean, one of the essences of capitalism uh, from, from the point of view of the consumer is that there's competition because competition means that you're going to get better computers, you're going to yeah. get better VCRs, you're yeah. going to get better telephones, you're going to get better, I don't know, console TV sets. I'm going back into it. Uh, <laughs> um, and if you don't have that, there really, you know, there isn't the incentive once they monopolize the market. So there's always been this sort of push and pull with the government stepping in. I remember when we were kids, when, um, you know, the baby bells, when the government sure. forced the telephone company to break up into these different uh, bell telephone units. Uh, and it seems to be the opposite of uh, things are going. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But yeah, um, well, media, especially, yeah, problematic for some of the reasons you mentioned. I mean, it's a great example of how what happens to prices, especially in the immediate aftermath, isn't shouldn't be the only public policy measure about whether a merger should go through. Um, you know, uh, Nancy McLean in Democracy in Chains, and also Ann Nelson in in her book Shadow Network, they you know they talk about how like the heartlands media is kind of all bought up by a couple people and they have a particular agenda in terms of, and, which is ironic, right? Because there's the supposed liberal, but um, right. anyhow, no, that's yeah. a, that's a myth. Talk about myths. We'll get, <laughs> um, so I let, I want to talk about um, all of these, these myths, these GOP economic myths, but before we do, we have to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by better help therapy online for 10% off your first month. Go to better H E L P dot com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. You know, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Okay, true story. This week, actually yesterday, uh, someone emailed me, a, a friend of mine, a reader of the column and a listener of the podcast and said, can you recommend BetterHelp? She actually wrote Better Health and it isn't, it's Better Help, H-E-L-P. Okay. And uh, really, because she said, um, you know, someone I know that I love is having problems getting a therapist because, you know, um, because of the pandemic and a lot of other reasons, the mental health industry is overtaxed and it is actually really hard to find therapists in the conventional way. Um, it's a big problem. And I said, yeah, no, BetterHelp is great. You know, it, I've used it. It's wonderful. Um, you get online right away. Um, I made sure she knew it was H-E-L-P, not BetterHelp, which is a problem because it's BetterHelp. <laughs> um, you know, and everyone deserves to feel their best. So, you know, we want to help people and BetterHelp makes it easier to get started. It's the world's largest therapy service. They've matched millions of people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. So you have all of the benefits of in-person therapy, but it's more convenient, more accessible, more affordable. And again, there are people that are there. They can help you like right away, which is at this moment, you know, super important. I think I think that's that's really one of the most important things about this. So you just fill out a brief questionnaire and a match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you switch to a new one anytime. Couldn't be simpler. There's no waiting rooms. There's no traffic and the searching. I mean, that's the problem. You can't. It's hard to find a good therapist these days. It's just really hard. And this is what helps you. And, you know, you need help. You need better help. So get unstuck with better help. 
Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Greg. That's better H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. Okay, we're back with Vince Safaria. Is it now in New Jersey? Do they say that or do they say it's Scafaria? Oh, actually, well, it would be, you know, my dad would have said uh, Scafaria. Um, oh, that's too, I've that's kind of, I've kind of toned it down a bit. Um, but I think, yeah, actually, I, what I what I you're reminding me of is that my first job. I had always gone by Vinny um, growing up in New Jersey, you know, on the on the on the Jersey Shore, and then I sold vacuum cleaners in high school at Sears of all places, uh, commission salesman at New Jersey in uh, Sears, and I got my business cards, and they said Vince. I said no, I go by Vinny. He goes, we're just not quite going to have Vinny the vacuum salesman from the Jersey Shore, you know. And I said, oh, <laughs> come on, you know, but but. Uh, uh, so, so he he made me go by Vince uh, for a little while, and then you know, damn it, it, it stuck. So you could call me Vin, Vinny, Vince, or Vincent. I I'm fine with that. Okay, that that's fine. I was getting at the I was getting at the pronunciation because as you <laughs> as you know, I am also from Jersey and Italian. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, now you you put out a great uh, thread a little uh, week or two ago about the scarcity myth. I want to talk. Yeah. Let's, let's start with that. Uh, yeah. What do you mean by that? And what's the? How are these? Fuckers trying to scare us. Right. Well, first of all, there you go. I mean, the first thing to know is that when you're scared, you run to simple solutions from usually the people who created the often fake problem, right? And that's kind of the 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 way of the fucker, as to use your uh, yeah. uh, terminology. So, I think where it starts is that it's very common sense to think of the government as having to budget the way a household budgets. As a as a you know um, uh, 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 father you know my well basically my wife and I right we have to look at our at our budget and make sure that we don't run out of cash. Uh, the gov- there was a time when the U.S. government um, had to pay its debts in gold. That time is no longer. We no longer have to pay our debts in gold. Um, and so an economy like ours is actually only constrained by what it has resources to be able to do. Now could we? pave every road this month. Okay. So, you know, President Biden gets up, he says, every road will be paved in the month of November, right? That would do what? It would cause inflation, right? We, we don't have to have all kinds of fancy words about too much money, too few goods, whatever, you know, it's just very simply um, the real resources of the economy couldn't handle that. And we would have inflation. Inflation is what an economy like ours does have to worry about. But by the way, we'll come back to saying that the real root causes of that matter tremendously. But if you think that you're going to run out of stuff and there's not enough stuff to go around, then you start kind of worrying, am I on? Am I aligned with the folks who will have the stuff? Um, you know, those other people there punching down, right? Those people don't deserve stuff the way I deserve stuff. And a whole kind of, it, it goes hand in glove with a lot of the, um, frankly, fascist rhetoric, okay? But, uh, uh, and, and here's what I'll mean by that, okay? We could talk about things like, uh, you know, return to a mythic past, uh, a strong leader, and all the things Mussolini laid out. But just to keep it really, really simple, are you for or against social cohesion? So do we come together as a society to build great things together, to do great things together, to more unified, to say, you know, damn it, we all want a lot of the same things. And I want freedom of religion, which is my religion. You want freedom of religion, which is your religion. So are we are we recognizing what we have in common? So when you have a scarcity um mindset, you're afraid that those people over there are coming to take our stuff. 
And now let's really weaponize those dirty immigrants, those mm -hmm. undeserving, those disgusting, barely even human, certainly not even American type of... Now, we need border, okay? Without borders, I mean, think of a cell without borders, right? It would just leak cytoplasm into the other cells, okay? <laughs> that... You know, and yet that cell, by the way, interoperates with other cells and it's a semi-permeable membrane. It lets some nutrients in. Okay. So, but you do need some kind of borders, but you don't need to weaponize us over here and them over there um, in all the different ways. And it, if fascist mindset never runs out of them. First, they came for the socialists, as the saying goes, or this time around, it feels like first they came for the transgenders, you know, uh, we're seeing with the Jews. So we'll talk about, we should circle back to what we, you know, scarcity mindset and why it's a myth. But suffice to say, really bad stuff happens that's self-serving for the people who say, don't worry, you're one of us. It's those people who are the problem. Okay, so that's a big part of the strategy for power. And all the while, not actually thinking. So, so it, it gets people thinking in terms of um, identity and us and them. And we're wired for that. I mean, for 99.8% of human history, you know, it probably wasn't the case that you and I as strangers are going to think of something great to do together. It might have been that you're coming for my woman or you know, my house or whatever, right? So we're wired to prone to that um, and it's exploited. So meanwhile, while focusing on, you know, identity and what we, what divides us, uh, we lose track of that they're actually picking all of our pockets. So these people who are in power who get us to focus on how different we are, the people who really have power and really have wealth, they're very different from us, all right. They're different from us in that it's that whole 0.1%, et cetera, et cetera. And more perniciously, it's the wealth begetting more wealth and the power begetting more power. I mean, that guy's kids, I don't care, pick rich person X, his kids, oh, the death tax, right? Hang on a minute there, champ. You know, when there's an inheritance, there should be an inheritance tax because who's to say that the next generation is, you know, is God's gift and let's keep it going. So in fact, not not, not, not to interrupt you, but please, you know, most uh, of these horrible right-wing organizations and these dark money funders are heirs of great, yeah, a significant yeah. percentage of them sure. are people that inherited their fucking money yeah. and they didn't actually do anything to, to gain it. So yeah. Fred, Fred, Fred Koch was, uh, you know, out there doing his thing and then, you know, money went to Charles and David, who made the business even more successful. But uh, yeah, you know, the whole John Birch Society founding, you know, uh, founders, anyhow, so yeah, noted. Yeah. So so yeah, but it is actually a myth because a, a government like ours that pays off its debts in its own currency, quoting Alan Greenspan, 2005, cannot go broke. So Alan Greenspan, Ayn Rand disciple, admits in 2005 that your entitlement programs, your social security, all these other programs, they actually can't go broke. And I'll, I'll dig up the quote while, while we're talking. But, um, and, and, but that's not in these folks' interest. Um, they would like for us to believe that, um, that we can. And well, you know, a couple of a couple of, of quotes I want to throw at you while you're while you're talking. You sure. were talking about how rich people are different. That it, it echoes the great line that that Hemingway said. You know, the Hemingway and Fitzgerald were having lunch. Probably they were having drinks actually. And uh, uh, Fitzgerald said, uh, "You know, the rich aren't like you. You know, you and me." And Hemingway said, "Yeah, they have more money." You know, that's, it's a great yeah. line, but it's true, and they have I, so much, so much more money that it it skews the way that they think about the yeah, world. Yeah, I, I think the real trouble is when it actually has a positive feedback loop, and I mean that 
not in a good way, uh, 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 like an accelerating, you know, you know, like you'll get feedback from a microphone if you stand too close to, you know, another, yeah. another sound, right? Um, it's because, so, so there's a, a feedback loop of when it gets to a certain point, it actually bends reality in front of them. Like it changes society so that it can compound even further. And, you know, the UK with what they were trying to pull off there was, you know, under Liz Truss was a great example. Anyhow, but that's um, the next. That's the next question. But go back to go back to scarcity. Oh, Greenspan! Yeah. I wanted to say Greenspan predicted that Mark McGuire would break the home run record right the year <laughs> right before he broke the. I well, remember that. I don't know so, how he's juicing yeah. the baseballs. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they were you know both on steroids. I don't know. Well, so so you know he 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 said you know um and this is just it's just really obvious actually if you just when when you take a moment to think about it and Stephanie Kelton. Um, was the person who, a uh, professor at Stony Brook University, whose work I've been exposed to a lot. And, uh, you know, she pointed me to this quote, for example, I wouldn't say that pay-as-you-go benefits are insecure, says Greenspan, in the sense that there's nothing to create the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. And then now you would pause and say, aha, creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. And then that takes me back to what I was saying before. There's one speed limit for the economy and it's inflation. And right now, in 2020, in October 2022, we have inflation. So what we shouldn't do right now is deficit spending. Now that's different from saying that in 2036 we won't have money to pay the same damn nurses who exist in the real economy of 2035 and who, by virtue of having a job taking care of some older person, spend that money back into the economy. And so this is the difference between the household story of economics. We're going to run out of gold, if you will. Yeah. And what really goes on? So take uh, uh, the take 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 the uh, I call it the handouts variant of the scarcity myth is when you talk about like those handouts. Okay, so hang on a second. Let's suppose someone gets food stamp, and I, you know you could say it's because they weren't working hard enough, and I could say, well, maybe you know maybe uh, uh, something happened to someone's husband, and you know who knows? There's all kinds of reasons, right? But now, where does that money go? It goes to the shopkeeper. It goes to the shopkeeper who then has this money and spends it back into the economy. Maybe eventually this person gets back on their feet and is able to get a job working for the shopkeeper. Finance is about creating something. It's about ultimately the, the best vision of finance is about making the future things possible because of something that's happening today in terms of making money available, making credit available, et cetera. That is the 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 beneficial side of what we would hope happen, right? The the simple simple story of gosh, if only I had enough money to build a fishing vessel, uh, I could then you know we we could we could hire a fishing you know everyone could get a job as fishermen on our little desert island, let's say, and we could you know share the the haul. But I'm going to need everyone's help to get to that point, and so we'll borrow money and make it happen, right? So there's a magic to this, but it isn't only a magic that can happen in the private sector. The public sector, if that foods, those food stamps get paid, if their child does in fact go to school, if their child doesn't actually get sick um, and is you know, able to stay awake in school because they've been well-fed, then you know, for heaven's sake, this is going to pay off in, in other ways. And so the economy, we don't have the 1850 GDP because we do things like this. The private sector does some, the public sector does some. Now, who should do what? So Another really interesting point that Stephanie Kelton makes is that a government deficit is a private sector surplus. A private sector deficit, when the private sector's belt is tightened, the government has a surplus. They are two sides of the same coin. The dollars are somewhere. It's like two sides of a ledger. And so you have 
Um, when you have inflation, for example, it's not a bad idea to rein in deficits, as Biden has done to the tune of one and a half trillion dollars this year. So that's a good policy. But when if we start having seeing inflation go down, if we were to especially if we were to start seeing a recession, a little bit of government spending would be a fine idea. And in fact, it's not a bad idea to you know maybe have some public works programs. Suppose you were to say, hey, now would be a great time to fix those lead pipes. Grab your thermodyne TIG welding torch, okay, as we bemoan the loss of manufacturing, and fix some pipes so that we can have clean water, right? Or, um, okay, uh, uh, remediating environmental uh, uh, problem. So, you know, what's what's wrong with fixing pipelines so that they leak less? And all these, like, there's all kinds of things that can be done. And so infrastructure is a great example of that, but so is the care economy. If a woman can't go to work because she can't find daycare for her kid, and then someone says, I would go to work to, you know, uh, uh, as a, uh, to take care of your kid. And then that woman goes to work. That's great. What is the lesson of finance? We might need a little juice to get this ball rolling. Otherwise, we're going to stay stagnant with this kid who, you know, has a mom who can't go to work. And so sometimes the public sector has to step in to do that. The libertarians have us believing that none of that should ever happen in the public sector, that it's all from charity. We've seen what these charities end up doing. You have tax defer, you know, tax exempt status to push your agenda to bend society further is what many, not all, charities, of course, you know, uh, do. And so there's nothing wrong with democracy, with with uh, citizens saying, actually, I would like for Nana to have Social Security. Can we go broke by paying that Social Security? No, because those 2036 nurses are the same nurses that were there in 2035. It's only constrained by the real economy, and we won't run out of gold. And you're saying 2035, 2036, because that's when the the money. There's all these different projections. There, yeah, right? I'm yeah. using it okay. as a kind of just yeah, to just, just to just to year. hit that home. So the scarcity myth, in short, is basically saying they are trying to scare us. It's scarcity. It's like <laughs> right? Halloween, right? They're trying to scare us into thinking that the resources are limited. Like you, you made the the you started this this part of the discussion talking about um you know it, the fear of immigrants coming to take what's ours, right? But if there's basically a, 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 an infinite supply of whatever it is, or certainly an ample supply of whatever it is, then we don't have to worry. And certainly with with dollars, which can be printed by the government at any time, there is theoretically. So it's not it's not like, hey, uh, we're on an airplane that's going to crash and there's two parachutes and there's seven of right. us. It's well, not that. that. It, that's absolutely true. And I will clarify, there's certainly not an infinite supply. There's one speed limit and it's, but when you believe that you have inflation and also that you can run out of, you know, uh, uh, of gold, for example, then you can't make the same policy. So when you recognize it's only really about inflation and, you know, is it about a deficit or surplus? So that's like at a macroeconomic level. Um, but what's just so interesting about the scarcity myth is that if we believe in it, it we're guaranteed scarcity. It creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you end up, and, and I, I use this little uh, metaphor of, you know, uh, two ships uh, crash they, they become shipwrecked, one of them on Possum Island, so positive sum, one of them on zero sum island, okay? And on Possum Island, uh, you know, they look and they see how many supplies they have, and they decide who should have, you know, how many of those supplies, and they just like kind of go to each of their separate areas of the island, and, you know, hey, and, and lo and behold, at some point, they run out of those supplies, right? They have not created any value together. On Possum Island, they say, um, okay, we have a certain number of supplies, but if I specialize, you know, getting lumber for you to then go make a ship for you then to go, you know, make nets and whatever, then we're going to be all the, and you tend the fires. 
And then later that turns into tending the fires, becomes, I don't know, iron smelting and all these other things. And they've created a positive sum in the economy. And so, and then I kind of, you know, joke that, uh, yeah, one of the, one of the guys, the last survivor on zero sum Island, when they're all done killing each other for the last, you know, uh, scores bar or whatever, um, <laughs> says, well, how could that be? All the gold was on our ship, you know? And, and so, so, you know, the, the, the point of it is that, um, an economy is what we do together, Greg. And I, I hadn't yeah. really come up with that quote before, but that's exactly it, you know, and there's no economy outside of a political economy. Um, Kurt Anderson, I think it was, uh, said that like every economy interacts with its society. I mean, the economy is what we do together. It's not this fantasy that, you know, because I'm John Galt and I'm going to go over here. I'm so, you know, great from the Ayn Rand novel. You know, uh, I created all this value. We created it together. In fact, even that person with the food stamps ended up spending it back into the economy. And at some point, hopefully they get back on their feet. And you know what? For God's sake, if they can't get back on their feet, I mean, what is the percentage of people that you know that would choose squalor over, I don't know, nine to five, you know, and a decent weight? Um, and then, oh, another example of a myth beyond the scarcity myth. This one's just so simple. It's so ridiculous. The idea that the loss of manufacturing jobs is what hollowed out the middle class. Okay. Now, I would love for us to have more manufacturing jobs, but you know what you can offshore really easily and you can't, what you can't offshore really easily rather? Um, service jobs. So like education and healthcare, you can't really easily offshore education. Think of your college tuition, healthcare, right? Look at those, look at those, those prices. Service jobs can do phenomenally well. My grandfather had a service job. He did HVAC repair after World War II. And he gave my grandmother a pension that let her dance at her at her 90th birthday party 20 something years after he had died. You know, and I want to live in a country where that's what Nana's up to. I called her Nona. That's what that's what Nona's able to do, you know? And I think we all want that. And we're just told that we can't have that. It's just so full of shit. I mean, how did we make the road system? How did we get a man on the moon? Did we suddenly run out of plutonium? I mean, what? It's it's such bullshit. It's the I wrote about this uh, um, on my on my Substack. Um, we're recording this on the twenty sixth. I wrote about it this week. It's that they want to demonize these words. You were talking about um, you know that the economies are based on shared things, and I think fundamentally, when you look at how governments and federal budgets are, the questions that societies have is, what do we want to collectively spend our money on and what do we not? Where do we want to yeah. draw the line? Yeah. I don't think any, I don't think even the most ardent libertarian, maybe yeah. Eric Prince, doesn't think that people should have individual armies. I think everyone's okay with the U.S. having one right. army. Defense is one that they'll right. give you. Yep. But, but And there, there are things like that, but it's like, okay, so where's the line? Okay, education, yep, great, we're going to have schools. Why is healthcare not a thing? Like, sure. I, we would, all the other major economies have universal health care yeah, in some form yeah. except us and like what the the money that's that's being squandered by this but yeah. between people going bust people going bankrupt yeah. and also and people who are stuck in jobs because of their health insurance that have great entrepreneurial ideas and they can't yeah. fucking quit to go do something else yeah, it's so absolutely. stupid well um, and, and and you know i i think the uh the evil genius of of the uh of the fuckers as you would say <laughs> Um, was kind of leaving us with a with a system that's a little bit stuck in the middle. I mean, you know, yeah. you see from Biden, it's not like he didn't want thirty dollar insulin, and it's not like he didn't want more pricing transparency and so forth. 
but you know, we got the system, we were able to get through the finish line, right? But what is what is what works about a system where you have no idea the price of anything? I mean, I have I have no idea what I'm gonna pay when I when I go to the ER or the doctors or, or whatever. It's 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 crazy. Um, but you know, so there's this actually there's an amazing book, uh, the Nordic, the Nordic Theory of Everything by Anu Paradin, <laughs> and she talks about um, you know, she lived in Finland and then uh, the United States and ended up moving back to Finland. Um, and just, you talk about freedom. And, you know, freedom is one of these words, we all want freedom. Right? And and one of the areas where we could talk about freedom is, you know, my freedom from tyranny versus your freedom to punch me in the nose, right? And that's, <laughs> that uh, you know, uh, that's a debate that, you know, people have. There's, I, I, and it's ridiculous, obviously, you know, you should be free to do a whole lot of things that are minding your own business. And, not bothering me. Um, I, I forget if it was, that doesn't matter. Um, what what Anna Paradin says is that there's also just a certain amount of freedom from stress, just the freedom from worrying about how am I going to retire? How am I going to take care of my wife if, if her if her illness gets worse? And you know, those that kind of freedom should have value. Um, yeah, and if we're led to believe that we can't have those nice things because reasons, um, you know, that's, that's putting us or back, reason, in the, magazine. back in the box. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's the libertarian. Um, yeah, I, it, it, it's, uh, that, that's a good point because we certainly have not been living in a stress-free life. Uh, you know, basically Gen X has been, has been screwed. It's been, that's where, where the dividing lines are, you know, the, the boomers are going to retire and they're going to have social security and Medicare and we're going to get fucked out of it. And we've known about this since it, the early nineties. It, it's entire, actually. Yeah. So here's, what's interesting about that is that, it is today not at all too late. It is entirely about how we vote. And you know, I, I tweeted out today some really interesting quotes. And 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 um, the the fellow I'm quoting from is uh, you know Robert Eisner. But in any event, uh, these things are just obviously true as I'll, as as will become apparent. Social Security uh, trust funds are simply accounting entities. There's not a box of money that has a certain amount of money in it. It is purely an accounting entity. Our payroll taxes go instead actually to the United States Treasury. And our benefit checks come from Treasury. If you look at a Social Security benefit check, it's written by the Treasury, not some trust fund. So there is no actual crisis. There's no money in Social Security to run out. All it is, is will politicians agree to continue to pay Social Security? It's that simple. It has nothing. Roosevelt, Roosevelt basically said that the reason he wanted payroll taxes to, to, uh, to be a way to pay it is so that no one would ever take away his program. That if we've paid in, if we feel that we've paid into Social Security, and we have, I mean, Greg, I have less money because I've paid into Social Security, right? Yeah. Um, obviously. But, but by doing so, he believed that we would never let a politician take it away. They knew when they created the program that that wasn't necessary from a, from a financial standpoint. It was necessary from a political calculus that, that if we've paid into a system, that it's going to be really hard for any politician to take away his program. But yeah. there is no pile of money dwindling. There, there is no pile of money dwindling. And that is shocking to realize. Yeah. All that exists is that the amount we've said that we'll we'll have for future obligations has not had a signature from Congress saying no problem that shall be met. Imagine the fall off between I'm just going to make this sound like a cliff, okay, between 2035 and 2036. Suppose they did nothing like the the guy who doesn't look at his bank account, okay? 
And then all of a sudden, one day he ran out of money. And let's just suppose that was December 31st, 2035, okay? Look around at the real economy, same number of nurses, same amount of pharmaceuticals, same number of hospital beds. What the hell would you do? Tell everyone they're not allowed to go to work? Because you ran out of what? You ran out of Rand Paul's signature? It's bullshit. <laughs> There's no actual problem. You would cause a deflationary depression if you shut down the elder care system that year. And you do it as a self-inflicted wound. We've seen self-inflicted wounds. That's what the UK was trying to do. Yeah, It is entirely self-inflicted. So let's just not do that. Let's instead vote. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the UK thing, because I think you know, we've been talking a lot in in sort of uh, broad terms and 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 hypotheticals, I think. And in the UK, with the the Liz Truss, we we hardly knew ye. Um, you know, she came in there. You've had a lot uh, of great coverage. <laughs> <laughs> well, she came. Thank you. She came in there with with Quasi Quartang, the wonderfully named Quasi Quartang, and and just tried to shake shit up in a way that I think everyone was like, "Well, what are you doing? What what are you doing? Um, what was she trying to do?" Well, so there's. Two really interesting um, posts that you're making. Um, one is Jared Brock in Surviving Tomorrow. Uh, he has an article, Britain is trying to win the first developed country to crash. Um, <laughs> fake conservatives are desperate to plunge the nation back into feudal serfdom. Okay. And misery is the point for certain folks. Now, again, if there is scarcity, if there is fear, if there is you know, no way for us to have these nice things and we all have to belt tighten, right? What does that mean? It means that money can't be shuffled around. The people who have it, the people who have wealth and power will retain their wealth and power. When Roosevelt tried to shuffle money around to create the new deal and he wanted to, you know, not have a fixed tie to gold, they tried to kill him. Yeah. There was something called the business plot, which I'm sure your listeners know about, where, you know, Smedley Butler was asked to raise a half million man army and depose or kill Roosevelt um, by, you know, business tycoons because they were threatened by the idea that society could choose what are fair allocations of wealth, power, and capital. And by the way, it shouldn't be even. It shouldn't be. There's a lot of things it shouldn't be. But you know, it's there are some. I think it's 24,000 millionaires. I should really look this up. And like 725 billionaires, right? And so we all think like I can be or want to be a millionaire. Oh, just 2.4 million. Uh, I, I'm going to look up the. Uh, but it's like, oh, but I want to. I want to have nice things. I want to have a big house, etc. We can't contemplate what a billion dollars is. It's a thousand million dollars. Is it's ten thousand six figures. Is but you got it all at once, tax free, right? We can't picture what 65 billion dollars is. It blows the mind, and it can be used to warp society. So. The solution, many folks, your fossil fuel billionaire, your various libertarians, various folks, it's like, you know, you know what could rein us in? A really well-functioning democracy. You know what's going to have people on their back foot is if everyone is in fear and we've told them a, a narrative that says there's not enough to go around and those people are to blame and the us-theming that happened. And, and that's really messed up. Um, and I'm not saying that that was necessarily any one particular, like Liz Truss, I don't really, hardly knew her. I, I hardly knew her, right? <laughs> so it's hard to say, you know, who plays what role in these, you know, plays that go upon the world stage. Um, but it's it's just wrong and it's um, you know, it literally an obvious self-inflicted wound. Now, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we'll be doing that, good sir. And the bullshit reasons uh, to to pretend that we can't give aid to Ukraine, that we can't, um, which is literally the Eastern front of democracy in the world today. They are saving our bacon if they win this war. And you've yeah. done a fine job talking about 
the game theory of it all too, of how if we if we reward aggression and nuclear threats, we'll live in a more more dangerous. But Absolutely. the idea that we can't afford to do that, that we can't afford social security, it's all manufactured. And the one thing that would happen is this: if the dollar goes to shit because we don't honor the obligations, the the the, the debts we've already incurred, right? We've actually spent the money, is what I'm really trying to say. Yep. So if we don't do that, then the dollar is going to lose, have confidence lost in it the same way that happened in the UK, but worse. And if we cannot, remember the superpower I said earlier is we don't have to pay off stuff with gold. Well, damn it, I don't want to be running around looking for yuan in order to pay off you know, our nation's debts. That's going to be a whole lot trickier than having a solid, stable reserve currency. Yeah. But you know, if, if everything goes to hell, powerful people know, there's no such thing as nihilism gets you an evil, a level playing field. There's always the guys who had their bunker and their gold bullion and who know exactly what to do to be, you know, king of the uh, afterworld, right? So it takes a long time to build functioning institutions. We need to preserve them. Um, and I'll stop there. Yeah. That's how the French revolution, the French revolution started fundamentally because the king repudiated mm. Uh, rather than raise taxes on the the rich people or the uh, and the church and stuff like that, he chose to repudiate the debt. And, um, and, and back it did not end right well for him. Yeah, it yeah. did not end well for him. Um, yeah, Jack and Jill went up a hill to catch. You know that's about them. Right? Uh, beheading. Uh, what was it? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jill came tumbling after because she lost her head like nine months. Uh, yeah. These nursery rhymes are spooky, right? It's very Halloween. We're very Halloween. Okay, I want to ask you about about the pro social capital because it's such a good idea. And Thank we you. It, we're we're an hour, almost an hour into this. We haven't. Oh even my gone. god, I forgot. I forgot. I have other interests besides you know freaking out about the economy. Um, so yeah, I, I hope your listeners won't mind what I've been sharing so far is most definitely not my day job. Uh, you know, a long long time ago, I I taught taught a bunch of stuff on Wall Street. Not even this, actually. It's more a matter of waking up about certain economic myths. But what my day job is privacy first software. And so about 10 years ago, started seeing what was going on with social media and you know where it seemed like things were going. And it always just seemed totally upside down to me. The idea that you have to send your data elsewhere in order to get value. Why? I mean, why can't software come to you where the data sits? So you know, in the old days, I had a Dell desktop. And if I wanted to get my taxes done, I didn't have to tell some company about how much money I made. I just installed the CD. Right. I mean, you know, the the story we've been sold is that we can't have the modern world if we don't send all our data up to one of several oligopolists. That's not only it's 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 <laughs> it's untrue. It creates an inferior economic model that's starting to fall apart. Witness Facebook's stock price fall ever since certain tracking cookie way. Um, and it's actually much harder for entrepreneurs. So suppose you wanted to, you had this great idea to have an app that'll tell you based on your genomic data, what foods to avoid. Great, simple idea. Okay. It would be awesome if I could give you somehow like a CD for that, if I'm using an old, old days analogy. Okay. But right. how do I get my little tiny piece of software to you, Greg, to run against your 23andMe data? Right. Like we've forgotten how to do that, right? Uh, Compu instead, it would be like- Computers hey, don't even don't have you... CD drives anymore. Exactly. Very annoying. So, okay. so the entrepreneur would say, I'm going to create a website. It's going to be great. And I'm going to raise money. And I'm going to tell people to trust me with their 23andMe data. And I can probably monetize that a bunch of different ways and so on. Well, why doesn't Greg just have a place where Greg's data sits or certain parts of Greg's data? And little apps can run there, okay? Call it your like, I call it your mobile phone for right now, okay? My point is that no data has to go anywhere. Okay, we could do better than that. 
But if apps that are safe and cannot programmatically cannot take your data elsewhere, that's just a totally different, more vibrant model. I can have another app that analyzes your work relationships against your personal relationships and your CRM at work and recognizes, holy crap, Greg, one of your really close personal friends is the CFO of a company we've been trying to reach out to as a firm. Now your boss doesn't have to know that you about that. And for crying out loud, you wouldn't give your boss your Facebook. But if this data is all analyzed in a safe Greg space, then you, Greg, can bear that benefit and have that insight without anyone else having to know it. No surveillance capitalist has to know that. Your boss doesn't have to know that. And now you can decide, hey, I think I might have an opportunity to be really valuable at work. Now, where this becomes really important is with something like media. So media is broken and getting worse. Um, Brian O'Kelly, who was one of the creators of the modern ad network, it, what, what he points out is that folks don't, advertisers don't even need to bother serving me an ad as a New York Times subscriber at the New York Times where it's expensive. So much cheaper for them to just know Vince Gaffaria was perusing, I don't know, the travel section. And then later hit me up at a clickbait site when they might also know all these things about where I might want to travel and everything else because they know everything about me. The New York Times left revenue on the table. Now, Google and Apple have shut down certain personal ad trackers. So Facebook's stock started falling a year later. I, I wrote this essay a year ago. I can't believe it took so long. But um, Facebook's stock started falling a bunch because it's getting harder to spy on folks. Why not instead say, no, uh, my digital robot butler, uh, Vince's, okay? Digital robot butler, we'll call him, right? And he runs either on my phone or on like a personal, a little personal cloud computer, okay, that I don't have to worry about. It's just so easy, I don't have to think about it. But there's a little thing there and it says, my human, who you're not allowed to know who it is, has a credit score of 750 or higher and is thinking about buying a minivan. Never mind that it's because my digital robot butler has figured out that I seem to have a baby on the way or I've told that I'm looking for minivans or whatever, okay? Why the hell does anyone, would anyone have to know that I have a baby on the way or even who I am? Why doesn't the software, while I'm reading the New York Times or reading something, why does anything have to exfiltrate who I am in order for that commerce to happen, right? So it's just backwards that we have to have our lives sent out. Instead, software could run against our data. And there's no place where, I mean, any software that only knows my Facebook self is never going to serve me the best economic opportunities. Any software that only knows my Gmail self is not going to serve me the best op economic opportunities. And I'm calling it that instead of ads, because there's no reason it couldn't point out there's a great opportunity to go, I don't know, um, rent this property that's down the street. Who knows what the opportunities are? Sure. Yeah. We don't have to just think about advertising either, right? So there's an entire mirror world economy that never happened. Jaron Lanier talks about it. Tim Berners-Lee, who created the World Wide Web, talked about it. And he, he wants to reform his invention of the web. Now I think there's an appetite. And I think there's an appetite, especially starting with media, because media properties have just been eviscerated. The ad model is not working for them. It's only working for Facebook. And as Twitter is about to get bought and everything else, we need a trustworthy digital town square. And, you know, planting a flag somewhere and saying, this is the Vince node on the web and you planting, this is the Greg node, or, hey, it could be the Greg anonymous node, right? That has, you know, your coin collecting self or something like that. Mm -hmm. But but for crying out loud, why does why does each of us have to be a serf on Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, um uh feudal kingdom? Especially when it looks so terrible at that meta. It's <laughs> Oh, who is going to be doing that? I mean, I I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. Uh, I saw I saw a commercial for the Oculus and they're like introducing the new upgrade. I'm like, upgrade. I literally know no one who has this or wants it. What the fuck yeah, are these people yeah. talking about? It's crazy. Uh, that, sorry, I interrupted your flow. I no, no, that, that's the flow. I just want to, I think that's a great idea. It's also, 
as I as I mentioned to you when we spoke, um, you know, in Silicon Valley, the show, this is this was his big idea. Richard, Richard Hendrick, he wanted decentralized internet, and it's a similar kind of vibe where it's not. I mean, it's not the same thing, but something that isn't just getting sent and collected by. Yeah, they're, they're, they're basically so, the so, most awful people that they can find. So what's what's interesting is it also doesn't have to be pure decentralized. It certainly doesn't have to be blockchain. I mean, there's no reason we can't leverage, you know, uh, certain Google APIs, leverage a Twitter search API. I shouldn't have to start over necessarily, right? Why can't Twitter or maybe the government could lean on them to make sure that they allow me to consume some of that information somewhere else also? I mean, I ought to have a oh, here's my Twitter and here's my Facebook and here's my email and here's the subset of it that I really ought to see. All those things should be possible. They're not possible today because reasons. It has nothing to do with the tech. It's all about power. And right now, you and I have no power online. We are not, we, we, we lack agency. And you know what it also shouldn't be is blockchain because if we're talking about regaining our voice and agency online and how we need a town square for democracy and everything else. You can't have, you know, one coin, one vote, you know, whoever has the more. You don't want to take on a tech stack that has all of these other ramifications about, you know, dark money and everything else. And frankly, it's completely unnecessary. All the engineers, uh, fellow engineers who I talk with about this, they're like, and there'd be no reason. I, I have a short essay on this topic at scafaria.com. It's, I think, my most essay. I um, hope and my, that, and my DMs um... are open at, at scafaria for all but trolls. <laughs> oh, you'll get trolls. Um, I'm glad that 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 blockchain is going out because I don't want to have to know what blockchain is. I've read about it, and it, 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 it you know, let, let's put the the Yang forward party yeah. blockchain. Let's just let's yeah. just shelve the well, whole thing. Actually, Greg, I, I I can use some words that will definitely be understanding. Blockchain has it 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 is decentralized, but you know that's like saying a, a square is a rectangle. There's lots of other kinds of rectangles. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are lots of ways to do something decentralized. The thing that blockchain uniquely can do well is ensure that a coin was not double spent. Yeah. If yeah. you're going to create coins, you should, and you know a thing or two about coins, you know, you, you'd like to have a digital coin that wasn't double. Spent. So blockchain technology helps with that. Um, but, you know, having untraceable, I mean, supposedly there's actually all kinds of people who figure out what people are doing on, on blockchain and Bitcoin, but, uh, you know, we've had enough of dark money. I, I think dark money has proven to be a bad idea. So I'd love to see a little less of it. Um, I think your guest last week uh, was on about uh, Delaware. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was, that was terrific. Been, yeah. um, another another book, just kind of like the the sister, the companion book to that one is um, American Kleptocracy by Casey Michelle. And uh, also excellent, uh, South Dakota, Nevada feature prominent as well. And yeah. you know, it's, just, it's just incredible what dark money has allowed. And it's like, you know, what they're trying to think is, okay, let's come up with a, a kind of currency that's untraceable, that if I give you the currency, there's no record of it. And there exists such a currency and it's called cash. So do we really need this at all? Like this is the first fucking thing that well, people invented. I love that. I love that, you know, if 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 I try and put $10,001 in my bank, there's all kinds of, you know, all kinds of people will come out in suits and check on what's going on. But if you know, millions or billions of dollars moves around. $30 million moves from Russia to the NRA to politicians, you know, no one blinks yeah. an eye. Well, as, as long as they're buying a Picasso that they're going to keep in some Freeport somewhere, no one's right going to get to see. That's that's how it goes. Okay, so we're, we're, uh, we're running out of time, but I want to get... At we were talking about, you know, Dave Troy, who's the, I would call him a futurist. I don't know if he, if he would think that he's done a lot of different things, but, but um, he has this sort of theory now about what's going on, uh, which is that the, the fuckers, as I'll call them, the bad guy, the gold bugs or whatever, intentionally want to crash the economy. 
I'm not really sure why, but um, what, what do you make of his theory? And I'm not explaining it. Directly. So, yeah. So I, I don't know that I'd call Dave mostly a futurist. I, I think of him as, uh, you know, an investigative researcher, you know, trying yeah. to understand what the hell is going on. Um, I kind of think of Dave, uh, you know, I, I, I don't do the deep investigations that Dave does. I'm trying more like to just do more like simple synthesis of, of what I see from people like him. Um, but what I, what he's sounding the alarm about right now is that, and again, as a reminder, the Republicans are saying that they don't want so they, they, they don't want to extend Social Security. They're using the budget crisis again as a way to get what they want. Yeah. They there are many who are in the pockets of Russia, which does not want us funding Ukraine. Um, these things are going on now. Will they? Would they actually not raise the debt ceiling? believe that they absolutely would. Um, and that does concern me tremendously. It sounds so pedestrian, raise the debt ceiling. But as a reminder, our economic superpower, what is that the US dollar is how we pay off our debts. That's yeah. effing incredible that we pay off our debts in US dollars. So we're able to keep making our future by continuing to say, oh, that kid, I'm going to make sure he goes to preschool so that you know, in 2050, he's from doing. You know, he's going to be able to, uh, you know, help the future economy that we've now built together. It's that finance thing, right? Yep. But yep. it works at the government level, and it only works if you don't say, "Oh crap, we ran out of gold," right? So now here's the those gold bugs. This has been, and Dave's been following this. Yeah, he has for all along. I mean, you know, I uh, I had no idea about you know the uh, everything going on in the 30s, et cetera, except what I originally learned from Dave, and then also, frankly, from you over time. But you know, so, hey, would they do it? Of course, we can't know for sure. Um, it was absolutely uncanny that this weekend he came out with uh, an alert saying that he expected 24 Democrats to um, to be wobbly on raising the debt ceiling so as to support, you know, quote, so as to support Ukraine and Social Security and so forth. Um, and it was just what was so interesting about that letter that we got access to via the Washington Post? And this is the, this is the letter, yeah, the progressive wing of yeah, the Yeah, the progressive caucus letter. What was so interesting about it was it wasn't just a Ukraine letter. It didn't just say, um, you know, hey, we're worried about nuclear war, get to the peace table. I get that. I get that not everybody is seeing the game theory the way you are, the way Victor Rudd does, the way, right, about um, we're just going to create a less safe world if we believe every threat. I get that. But it said because of the tens of billions of dollars, that's in the, it's talking about tens of billions of dollars in the same breath. Why? Why would the progressive caucus so I, I was troubled by that and 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 I was really glad to see so many of um you know Raskin in particular. Uh, I was thrilled to see him um say, hey, this letter shouldn't have gone out. But it if there's if the Democrats are talking about the tens of billions of dollars, and Dave had before that letter come out, came out, yeah, said that folks are getting wobbly and we got to watch everybody's votes come January. Ah, that was pretty wild. That it was wild was saying that before it came out. That's why I call him a futurist, not because he identifies as oh, okay. one, yeah, because yeah. he sees shit before other people see it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I uh, meant it as a compliment. Yeah, yeah no, no. I, I think I think uh, uh, it's solely you know like there's futurists who predict whether we'll be you know cryogenically this and that you know down the road, and I think he's very focused on just how the hell do we preserve democracy given what everyone's yeah. up to. Um, I think it's pretty remarkable to come at conclusions like that through data. 
and just follow the data where it leads. Because some of the things are just so weird. Mess, you know, it's just incredible that those are actual beliefs. You read, you know, okay, that's really what Dugan thinks. That's really, you know, backed up by Timothy Snyder's book and son of a gun. I mean, these people, Dugan and Russia, like I, I feel like some of it, you know, if you go into the geopolitics of it, Russia has been ruled by autocrats since at least since basically Ivan the Terrible in the late 16th century. There's never been a period in Russia other than maybe a brief blip in, you know, kind of the 90s when you had drunk yeah. Boris Yeltsin and yeah. it was basically a mafia. Uh, yeah. uh, what do you call it? When, when you bust out of, of the entire country, yeah. um, it's never had any kind of quote unquote good government always been really some yeah. horrible, rich, obscenely wealthy person well, grinding and, and, peasants into the ground. They were Greg, the last country. A, it's, a, it's a great place to, oh, yeah, I don't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I, I was the last country to get rid of feudalism, you know, and yeah, it's always yeah. been that. So a guy like Dugan coming out of this, what Russia in its current form contributes to the world economy is natural resources and like tech trolling. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. But, but, but isn't it fascinating though? that the world's richest man lives in the world in the country you just described and so when we're trying to understand the mindset of those fuckers it works it's always been that it, the, it, the it, romanovs it, it, had more money than it, the other royal families did it, if if yeah. you it, if you create a zero sum game mm -hmm. that you've already won yeah. then no one's going to take it from you and so what we all want is a positive sum game and not everybody wants that and there's a lot of people who are just along for the ride they, they're just players in the game, you know, they're, they're kind of interchangeable parts. But the people who are really pulling the strings, sadly, you know, kind of know what's going on. And this vote is really important. I mean, I, I was never politically active at all. I voted for Bush. But in the last couple of years, I've said, oh, my God. I mean, Greg, I can't compete with you about, you know, saying this and that in 2016 and all that. That wasn't me. But I am really active now because I'm really concerned. That's and that's what we need. We need people to be concerned. It doesn't matter when they were, you know. Uh, there are people that have litmus tests for certain things. Look, everybody has done things. They look back and say, "I wish I had done that," or "It took me a while to figure this." It doesn't matter. The point is that we're all in the fight yeah, now. Now is the time to fight, and yeah. now is the time that we have to get to the poll. Um, my goodness, this this episode might be after the. It might run after the, the election. Uh, <laughs> Oh no! Yep. So uh, I don't know. I hope that uh, I <laughs> I hope everything goes well. Uh, if you're listening to this, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope I hope you know that that the uh, that that the folks who are in charge you know don't uh, don't use this to say hmm you did not support the party. <laughs> yeah, you did not support. We're gonna have to edit it. It'll be like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. Um, but getting back to the Dugan thing, and we're, we're gonna wind down because we're we're. We're yeah, running out of, out of time. But the, the Dugan thing, I mean, coming from Russia and that kind of, and I think you're right, it's zero-sum island. Russia, it's a great point. Russia is zero-sum island. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. in your analogy. And it works for those in power. There, It works for those in power. They want to fuck everybody else over and they don't care. And you can see how they, by how Putin is handling the war, the way that he's not only just killing all the Ukrainians indiscriminately with an aim for torture and cruelty, but how he's sending his own people, yeah. uh, knowing that they're going to get killed and, and doesn't give a shit. And that's almost a, a the mentality when you when you live in a but you take somewhere like I think China is not China has a history that is not and this is the thing about Dave's theory that I'm wondering if, and I want to get your thoughts on it and then and then we'll, we'll sure. wind down but 
I feel like, and I'm not defending, you know, what the Chinese have been doing by any means, because that's also an autocratic system. It's repressive. People aren't allowed to vote, et cetera, et cetera. But our economy and their economy is so wound up in each that they don't, China does not benefit of the U.S. economy, right? Or wrong. I mean, and that's to me, it's like, I don't get why they would want that. And if China doesn't want it and the U.S. doesn't want it and the EU doesn't want it, how the fuck is it happening? So it, it's really interesting. You know, a few days ago when Garland had that press conference and it was about China and not yeah. Russia, um, you know, it was a little bit of a gut punch, even though it's very important not to have, you know, espionage of trade secrets and bribes to officials and all that. It's very important, obviously, right, to, right. to address. Um but I think that what you and I are feeling as Twitter denizens, right, is that, and just, you know, being aware of, of things going on, it feels like Russia and Saudi Arabia are leaning on the scales more for the Republicans and for a certain amount of chaos than, than China. The, the, the nature of the revelations against China was about, you know, uh, espionage and technology and, and so forth. Um, whereas the things we worry about with Russia are not technology transfer that we worry about Russia with Russia is, you know, compromising our government and, yeah. you know, causing global mayhem. So I think there's a lot to what you're saying. Um, I haven't seen them lean on the scales the other way in any obvious way for the for the Dems. Um, but so I, I think there's something <laughs> you would know it from the memes. Is that what you're the, the well, memes I, they love they love to call anything the Democrats do as Chinese communist, whatever. It's one of well, their Catchphrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I thought your your glossary, by the way, was was right on point with you know how all the words get reused. <laughs> Truman pointed it out in fifty two. We're still here. Anyway, I interrupted. You were saying no. I'm 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 good. I, I think that's. I think I think you're probably. I, I haven't seen as much coming from China in terms of the threats to democracy for the United States and trying to create you know economic collapse. Um. So, but but I think that you know they're very important to be reckoned with. And, but, you know, more kind of like, seems like, it seems like the, the kind of uh, conversation, negotiation discussions that are a little bit more what we would expect of global geopolitics turned, you know, got ugly, you know, so it's like, we're a little bit frenemies, we need them for trade, all this and that, but, you know, and, and now there's all these crackdowns there. So it's something to be very wary about, but I don't personally go to bed worrying about China the way I personally go to bed worrying about Russia. That's very well put. And I, I, I'm i with you. Um, you know, I was just thinking, do you ever see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? The movie The Good, no. The Bad, and The Ugly? Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, it's wonderful. It's a great it's a great Western movie. The, the plot hinges on there's some gold buried at a graveyard. And for whatever reason, Clint Eastwood knows the name on the grave. And the other guy knows where the graveyard oh, and they hate wow. each other and they don't trust each other. So they have to like, they get to that point where they're yeah. at the grave. And, yeah. and that's what the US and China are yeah. like. Yeah. They don't trust each other. They're going to fight, but they need each other to get the fucking money. The, 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 I, you know, if we could, if we can, even just if it's wrapping on this, uh, you know, if you have more time, that's great. But I, I'm looking at the, the I'm just guessing. I just wanted to really hammer home something really interesting. We were talking about this prosocialcapitalism.com essay that I wrote. And when I originally wrote it, I was thinking a lot about China because the way we approach tech and AI is completely the China model. It doesn't make sense that all of our data goes up to the hive mind, to the to the 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 hand to the party, yeah. to the, you know, to the handful of powerful who then use it to 
sell access to our mind is yeah. what surveillance capitalism is. They are monetizing our minds. They literally bid out changing your behavior, Greg. That's how the markets work. And it's crazy. Now, a, a more American seeming model, if you will, or at least a you know in a Western democracy type of model would be that I have power in my, I have agency. Okay. I'm not expecting to be the man in charge of the internet, but you know, my digital self ought to, ought to have a degree of power, autonomy, and agency, right? And there's no reason I should have had to give up all of my thoughts and books and everything. Why not just let me harness little digital robot butler apps that, you know, check for food allergies and that tell me what I'm, you know, uh, that I missed something on my taxes or that there's, why on earth should all that be vacuumed up to the Zuckerberg and the, it's the China model instead of flipping the model and having a uniquely Western response that would frankly rejuvenate the entire internet. And I mean, Greg, you, you, you suppose there's someone who's got a rare coin near you, right? And they'd love to know, and they'd be willing to pay $200 for any you know, anyone to come look at their coin collection. You're like, huh, that's so nearby. I'd take a look at that. What's, how does that happen today? Someone sets up like, you know, oddjobs.com or something. You never find out about that. But if your needs and interests and where you are and all that could be listening for economic opportunities at any given time without sharing with the world who you are and what you're looking for, but instead you get a private tap on the shoulder when you're just the right guy to help. Like what a totally different economy that is. There's all sorts of beautiful things that would happen. Community capitalism. I love it. I think it's a great idea. As you know, um, I was just thinking that uh, the idea of knowing what coins are worth and other and most people having access to that information has dramatically destroyed the the the. Uh, sorry <laughs> if I picked a sore subject. In no, no, no. I don't care. I, I'm not a collector. I, I just work for the. But but uh, you know the collecting business has changed a lot because of the internet because it used to yeah. be knowledge was everything and you had to have the catalog and you had to have this and well actually that's part of what we need to regain is where my relationships matter to value yeah the, yeah. the amount that people trust me matters to how well i do in society um my reputation over time um all of these things should matter instead of us being commodified right and 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 just you know sliced and diced and until we're just cogs in a wheel right i'm unique in so many ways but if Facebook only knows my Facebook self and my mind is accident and, and I go to work and I don't bring my personal relationships at work because I'm never going to share my Facebook into Gmail and I mean into my work office, it's just everything's upside down. And Jaron Lanier, uh, L A N I E R, wrote about this. He's one of the fathers of like virtual reality and stuff. Uh, they talk about Tim Berners Lee. The web was built upside down, or the, what be, what it became. Right? They created all these possibilities, and instead, it just got you know put together by a few oligarchs. Yeah. Well, that's 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 also the American way. In, in, in some, some ways, sense. yeah. In some, in ways, some in sense, some ways, you know, that's true. It's always that way. Um, okay, so your 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 website where you have this this great essay. It's it's prosocialcapitalism.com. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's right. And and I actually I, I put a copy of it just for ease of if, if people want to just remember one thing. It's my last scafaria.com website. Sorry, it's my blog at scafaria on Twitter, and I put a copy of prosocial capitalism there. Um, and then, like I said, my day job is actually, uh, I try and keep my democracy pursuits separate from work, but if you're specifically <laughs> interested in, um, understanding relationship networks at work to be able to help make the right introduction, open the right doors, that's, that's my day job is software that helps, uh, bankers, lawyers, uh, accountants, consultants, and so on, like open the right doors based tips without leaking shouldn't, because again, it's privacy first. So that's, yeah, that's what I'm up to. Um, 
you could also email me, Vince at prosocialcapitalism.com. All right. Um, this has been great. Thanks so much for taking the time coming on today. It was great to talk to you as always. So good, Greg. Thank you so much. All right. I'll Vince see, see you again. Nice to you. see you. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa, Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.